Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. Before we get into the show, just a couple bits of news. The Invino Morte Kickstarter that I mentioned at the beginning of last episode has been delayed. It's most likely going to be coming out the end of September, so keep your eye out for that, and I will certainly mention it once I have more details. Also, I just posted an article to my blog, bluecubeboardgames.com, about designing elegant games. If you want to check that out, I'd love some feedback. Now, to our guests, we have with us C.M. Perry, the Bright Hope Futurist, back. We have Rick Lorenzon back, and we have Chip Bouvet back. All of them have been guests before. They're all wonderful game designers, and we are here to talk about randomness. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you. It's good to be here. So for listeners that didn't hear those previous episodes, uh, let's just go through and you can each give a quick introduction. Let's start with uh, C.M. Perry, who is Chris, so it'll be a little confusing because we're both Chris, but... Right. Thank you, Chris. Um, well, I'm C.M. Perry, the Bright Hope Futurist, and I was on an episode where we pretty much were just going over my uh, roll and write game book idea. And we just kind of talked through, you know, the ideas and the design of it as a product. And uh, so, yeah, now I'm here to talk about randomness. And Chip. Sure. Um, so I have uh, two published games out so far, both wallet games with Button Shy. Uh, one of them is Smoke and Mirrors, a bluffing game. And another is Universal Rule, which is a 4X game in a uh, set in the pocket universe. And Rick. Yeah, I'm Rick Lorenzen. Um, I don't really have a title other than the mailman, I guess, since uh, I'm a mailman. And uh, that's where I do a lot of my thinking for game design <laughs> while I'm out on my route. Um, I was on an episode with you about just discussing my uh, current project, Chrysopia, Lords of Alchemy. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I enjoy random things in games, so I wanted to... Uh, see if I had anything that I can contribute to this one. Awesome. So, randomness is a very large part of board game design. There are very few games that have no randomness, and some that have far too much. You have dice rolling, you have card draws, bag pulls, cube towers, a bunch of others that I'm forgetting. You can shake a box of rocks. That's a game. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, some people like a lot of randomness. Uh, lighter games, especially mass market stuff, tends to be very random. You have games like Candyland that is completely randomness with no player agency, or Snakes and Ladders, or Bunko, which these are all classics that people love. Um, but even in much higher-end hobby games and deep strategic Euros, there's still a lot of randomness of getting different resources and how you deal with it. So, what are your thoughts on randomness in general? Chris, let's start with you. Okay, well definitely, I don't think that randomness is an issue or a problem in a game, as long as it matches your target audience. It's, it's all about the target audience, for sure. Because there's definitely a time for randomness. The only time that you hear complaints is when that particular gamer or gaming group doesn't enjoy the way randomness is used within the game. So, I mean, just because a game has randomness isn't going to make it a bad game. And just because it's, you know, super random doesn't make it a good game. So as long as it's in its place, I think that that's, you know, 
a place to start talking about it is that randomness doesn't necessarily equate to unpredictability in a game either. Because unpredictability, there is that in chess. You don't know and can't predict the next move that the other player will take. So, I mean, randomness creates unpredictability, but unpredictability is not always the result of randomness. Sort of one of those, not all squares are rectangles, but all rectangles are squares. Yeah, actually, I, um, I remember you writing a, a blog article on Board Game Design Forum for that, Chris, and that really helped me to kind of separate those two ideas in my head because uh, sometimes you just kind of think, think of them as the same thing or two sides of the same coin, but they are different enough that it's important to distinguish that when you're, when you're kind of designing things in your game. Yeah, and, and the place that randomness falls within, say, turn order or within the event structure of a game is also important because if the randomness comes before the player makes a decision, then their decision is informed by the randomness. They can react to it rather than if the randomness comes after a decision point where I've made a decision to, say, take an action, and then I have to roll some dice or draw from a bag, and the randomness comes after my decision, and then I can no longer react to that randomness. So sort of the place that it falls within events is, you know, important. I think that there's, uh, there's a term for that uh, concept that I heard on Ludology a while ago, uh, output randomness versus input randomness. Right. Yeah, where... that's definitely the way that a lot of people talk about it. I think that the the un, the difference between randomness and unpredictability is a good point as well because to a certain extent as soon as the end result of a game is is known um, the game is pretty much over I mean one of the key parts of any game regardless of whether it has randomness or not is that the end result is not known in advance um, if it were it kind of fails to be a game at that point. Oh, I completely agree. That's definitely the end point of a game is when the outcome is, is known, which is the beauty of some of the new newer scoring methods that are coming out, like the one in Scythe, where there's so many different point structures and the positioning on the board determines, you know, at the very, very last end part of the turn, you can't really start counting all that up in your head until the end state or end game state is known. So that keeps yeah, that uh, anticipation going. Yeah, I, I think uh, both of you guys, I've um, actually heard some interesting things about randomness from you. Um, Chip, I remember your discussion on probabilities. And, uh, of course, I mentioned uh, Chris's uh, blog article that he wrote. And <clears throat> I think randomness is one of those things that um, can add a lot of fun tension, tension to a game. But a lot of people complain about the, when it's used in the wrong way. Um, where it takes away too much player choice and it, it leaves you just at the mercy of the game. Um, however, I also think that randomness sometimes can be a useful substitute for a really busy and overdone mechanic. If you want to simplify something, um, you can use ram randomness to do that. It may take away some player choice, but it may be necessary to get rid of some player choice in order for the game to be more smooth. Um, I guess you could use Catan as sort of an example that everyone could relate to. Like, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for resources to randomly generate stuff for you. Like, I randomly got ore out of a mountain today, 
or I randomly cut um, bricks that showed up in the brick hills over there. But they made it kind of a, you know, you could make it a worker placement game, but that makes it a more complex game. Um, and it would still be a fun game. There's a lot of worker placement games out there where you decide what resources you want to get by where you put your workers. But they, by simplifying that part of the, the game mechanic and the choice there by just rolling a die and getting random resources, um, you know, you, you kind of take away um, a lot of busy work in making those decisions, which simplifies the game. And you can make the player choices uh, a part of a different part of the game instead of, you know, every part of the game. Yeah, randomness is a good is a good way of adding unpredictability without adding a lot of complexity. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the uh, thematic ties to randomness. I was just listening to a review of, I think it's a solo game called Nemo's War. Uh, I was listening to a review on the Five By podcast, and one of the um, I'm not sure if this is a complaint or maybe a critique of the game was the amount of randomness um, involved in uh, in either the the outcome of battles or exploration. And the reviewer said, I completely get that it fits thematically and it fits with the story that if you're exploring and, and going to war and there are all these things that you don't have a lot of control over thematically. But as a player, I really wish I had that control. So even if it's thematically justified, uh, there are some players that are going to sort of bristle at um, not having enough control over the game that they're playing. And this goes back to the original point of um, the amount of randomness that's uh, palatable in a particular game is highly dependent on the audience that you're targeting. Yeah, I completely agree. That brings up a good point about solo games and randomness. Because in a solo game, you don't have another player to make decisions that you wouldn't know. So like Chris was saying, in chess, there's unknown in chess because of your opponent, but there's no randomness. But in a solo game, you need randomness. Otherwise, there is no game. It's just known information that you're sorting. Yeah, but there's, there are some good ways where you can kind of mitigate that randomness. Um, you can, for example, use custom dice where, um, you know, if you just want to roll one six-sided die, instead of having each side different, you could have two or three sides give the same result or, um, or even multiple results on one side. Um, or you could even have mechanics where you... Um, like in Ticket to Ride, when you draw des destination cards, if you draw three cards and get to choose one of them, you're kind of reducing the amount of randomness because instead of just picking one random card, you're getting to, uh, three random ones, but you get to choose between them. So even for solo games, you can work in different ways to kind of tweak the, the probabilities a little bit, give yourself a little more choice and control mixed in with that randomness. I just wanted to jump in with Chroma Cubes. It actually takes advantage of two of those uh, things that you mentioned. Um, the first is each side on each die offers the player a choice of two different symbols to use. 
and also each of the six dice have a different distribution um, so by choosing which dice to roll you get a lot more control over uh, over the outcome yeah and that's actually very similar I wasn't gonna mention that game specifically but what I was gonna say is that with a player choice inserted into randomness you can have the you know AI for lack of a better term or opponent player the the single player version of an opponent player be part of that player's choice like if I roll say two dice and then I have to pick one as an action but I know that the game gets the other one automatically so now which one I pick is now informed by the fact that the the game gets that other die so do I want to give the game this die or that die becomes the choice rather than which one do I want and then I roll for the you know the computer or AI player so you just kind of insert the the choice mixed with the outcome for the other side it's just one way to deal with it that's really neat I like that I like that combination of um, you know you've got the input randomness as long as you know in that example as long as the dice roll different things um, if right. they both roll the same thing obviously then you know, then there's there's no choice to be made at all. But it could be two unique dice. Well, oh, that that's too. true. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's almost a single player version of I split, you choose. Yeah. Except the choice is automatic. Yeah, it makes me think of like um, like either uh, two player uh, biblios, mm -hmm. where you're looking at the cards and deciding, you know, you get one, I get one, and the other, the third one goes into the auction. Um, or uh, herbaceous by the same designer um, where you could put plants either in your private garden or in a communal garden. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I really like that I split, you choose mechanic. And two other like single-player sort of mechanics to help mitigate randomness. One is uh, a value range that falls outside of a die. Um allows you to control it with, say, a bonus. Like if you're designing, say, a roll-and-write game where players can check off little boxes that give them a plus one to the die roll, you can eventually get to the point where I can't roll an eight or a nine on a six-sided die until I have a bonus that gives me a boost to get to that level. So you can have sort of a little graph of options where the lower values become obsolete and the higher values become more valuable later and new options open up but still with just a single die yeah i remember uh i remember you bringing that up on uh one discussion that we had that was kind of a cool idea for a mechanic and i can't remember what the other one was now but uh there's lots of little neat ways to oh and dwindling randomness that's the other one something that doesn't get used a whole lot is dwindling randomness where you know in reverse say i i'm searching for something in a roll and write game and there's six options and there's six sides to the die but I have to cross off the number that I roll because I've found that object. But now the rule in the game would be if you roll that same number again, you always take the next lower value. And so it becomes harder and harder to reach those higher dice unless you roll it. That kind of a thing. Where you continuously limit the options until only one remains. You know, there, there's, there's a lot of really good ways to... There's a lot of really good ways to mitigate randomness and to give players control, more control that the randomness seems to take away. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I struggle with is 
is mitigating the perception of randomness. There's something about having dice in a game um, that just immediately turns some people off, regardless yeah. of, you <laughs> know. Yeah, that a lot, yeah. So to me, like, I can, you know, I could calculate the, the probability of, of some event happening, um, but it never gets to, there's the only percentage at which I don't worry about an event is zero. <laughs> so <laughs> even if you could say, oh, there's a chance that this thing can happen and it'll ruin your entire game, but the chances are really, really slim. Well, let's say it's like one in a thousand. Um, if you're hoping that a thousand people are going to play your game, one of them is going to have that experience the first time that they play it, and they're never going to play it again. So the the probability is good to know, um, but I, I really think that there's a need to do a, a worst case analysis and realize that even if something is unlikely, some player is going to encounter it and uh, it's going to leave a bad taste in their mouth. Yeah, oh, yeah I, I completely point. agree. That brings up a, a good segue to switch a little over. We've been talking mostly about dice, but there are other options for randomness, which give you a lot more control over the system and how it changes dice, with the exception of Rattlebones and Dice Forge. <laughs> dice stay the way they are, and <laughs> whenever you roll a die, it's one of with a six-sided die, I mean, obviously, whatever sides, different count, but you roll a six-sided die, it can always be one of the six. Whereas if you have a six-card deck, once you remove one card, you only have the five left. So, like in uh, Settlers of Catan, they have the dice deck, so that you have the even distribution, or not even, but the probable distribution of numbers, so that those poor people on the 12 and 2 don't get screwed. But well, we, What we always do with Catan is uh, we put the uh, extra... 12s and 2s, so we have the 12s and 2s together on every uh, hex that they belong on. It gives you a little extra chance. <laughs> but uh, no, I um, not only that with card decks, so you can also stack the cards differently. Like you can have more of one type of card than another type of card, um, so that you can kind of have certain types show up more frequently than others. Um, but yeah, I. I I think there's a lot you can do with those too, and I um, I hear people complain about dice a lot. Um, you know, be, like Chip said about um, not liking those games that rely on dice because it's too random. But it's only because they're not using it in the most interesting or fun way. That um, doesn't mean dice are bad, but um, but you can because you can get a lot of you know random results and cards that are gonna make your game not as or maybe uh you know make you lose a game because you drew the wrong card you know well, I think, well that's the other thing yeah. if you have players that hate dice you can make a card deck or a bag pole that's statistically the exactly the same as dice but it's not dice so those people that hate dice won't hate your game yeah yeah i mean that's i mean if you take a look at say probably my favorite example of a deck randomness is pandemic You've got those those epidemic cards that just will randomly come out of that deck, and they could be really really closely spaced together and just spoil everything, or they could be really really spread out and you could have a really easy time of it. But that's all just based on the shuffle of a deck. So it's it's supreme randomness controlling 
uh, a tension within the game. And I think a lot of people happen to like that tension, and so the randomness works really well. But if you want to control that randomness, you could just add a card padding mechanic. It's something that I, I developed for our family as like a house rule. Is if, you know, every turn after one epidemic card has come out, you get X number of cards as padding if another pandemic card or an epidemic card comes out really close together. And that just makes it so there's more locations, uh, making it less probable that you'll have an outbreak right away. Sort of a little buffer. Yeah, just a little buffer. But I mean, that isn't needed in the game. There's a lot more that you could do with a, uh, a deck of cards to, um, to manipulate them. You know, like, for example, you can, you know, you can peek ahead. You know, you can have a mechanic where you can mm -hmm. look at the next card and decide whether you want to keep it or not. Um, and unfortunately, you can't do that with, um, you know, you can't peek ahead on a particular die. Yeah, and, and Pandemic has that forecast card that lets you draw six cards and then arrange them in a particular order that you want. And that's, yeah, that's absolutely a great way to do things. There's a lot of there's a lot of interesting things that you could do with uh, you know, with ordering a deck of cards. But one of the things that talking about the difference between um, dice and cards is there's this concept of a a moment in a game that leads to the stand up die roll. And it's great yeah. for the game experience. There's a lot of tension. Um, it really sort of creates a memorable story of that play of the game. But there's no such th or there isn't an equivalent for a stand-up card flip, for example. I actually have a story about that. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say I've had that in Pandemic. <laughs> well, I don't know how familiar any of you are with Magic: The Gathering. Yeah, a bit. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. So. I believe it was the World Championship. I forget the players. I'm totally blanking. But there's actually a song about it now. But <laughs> uh, the popular game at the time was Dragonstorm. And in it, there was a card where your opponent would randomly reveal a card from their hand. And they would take damage equal to the cost of that card. And the card replicated itself. So you would get to do it multiple times based on how, how big you built it up that turn. This was a mirror match. And this is, it was the semifinals, so just, just before the finals for the World Championship. And one player played that card against the other. And because of his life total and the three cards he had in his hand, one cost five, one cost two, and one cost one. So it was possible that the three flips would kill him or not. And what it came down to was the first two flips got him down to two health. So if the third flip was the two cost or the five cost, he lost the game. If it was the one cost, he was going to win the game the next turn. So the stakes were high enough that it became a stand-up card flip with <laughs> an audience of people watching this match that were, they were outside the room, but they could still hear the crowd from the excitement. So you can have it, but you really, really need the stakes to be up there. And you need people to understand the probabilities which I think is easier with dice. So that's why you get more common the stand-up die roll. Like, I gotta get a six. That's really easy for someone to understand. But yeah. if you're working with a deck of cards, the, well, I have to flip these three out of eight cards, it's, I think it's a little harder for people to get, so they don't always get that excitement. It's just, did you do it? There's a lot of really great design in that story because 
the fact that the the fact that the cards are is it like the converted mana cost or something yes the fact that the cards are coming from a player's hand and they go back into their hand you know for something that you're doing multiple times like you could get the same you could get the same probability sort of outcome revealing cards from the players from the player's deck instead but because they because that card activates multiple times and is designed to activate multiple times it plays really differently depending on whether your opponent has three cards in their hand or one or seven yep um, also in in that story besides the player that had the cards in their hand no one knew what he had so until he revealed the card with one on it that one time people didn't know that he had a chance of winning so once that yeah. popped up they're like oh now this is a thing hmm. yeah i've been trying to figure out uh that too like to me it seems like dice uh, roll of the die is a bit more of a stand-up type of attention than a card draw um even though they might both give you the same result and i don't know if it's just a psychological thing or what but uh, to me it seems like rolling the die gives a little bit more tension but I guess if when everything is set up just right for moments like that. Um. Well, it has to do with player buy-in. You know, everything in a game that's component-related is going to be based on activity. You know, you've got, I get to chuck a whole bunch of dice to see what happens, but I'm doing it. It's an active thing for me. And some players just really dig the active part of that. Whereas mm -hmm. drawing from a deck is an action but it's it's kind of anticlimactic because it's one at a time. Whereas I could roll, you know, three or four or five dice and just we're all hoping for a certain result and then we have to add it up and there's a whole bunch of activity in your mind that doesn't really happen with a card flip. There's some there's some tension too in a die that's sort of bouncing around the table for a short period of time. Yeah, and maybe that's part of it. <laughs> speaking of uh, different components, what do you guys think about spinners? I mean, this is another this is another um, component type that's not used in a lot of games, but to me, it's it seems like it has a lot of interesting potential, especially if players were able to sort of draw or map out their own um, their own areas on the spinner board. Oh, a custom spinner would be really good. I think it's, they're mechanically very interesting. Because, I mean, essentially, statistically, it's equal to a die. You, But you can set the size of the areas, so you can get much more nuanced control than if you just had a custom die. However, but, wouldn't that be kind of uh, depending on, like, how hard you spin it? Right. So there's also a dexterity element involved, which, I mean, you could argue that some people could be good enough at dice, but I would disagree. But with a spinner... <laughs> oh, I like, disagree. Although you have certain rules, like it has to rotate twice or something, so it's depending on the spinner. But I think the issue... Well, I think that's the biggest issue with spinners, is that mechanically they've been manufactured very poorly in the past and so that that gives a negative connotation to a lot of players right, that's what i was gonna say they you know you've got certain like versions a good spinner like a high quality custom yeah five dollar spinner nobody wants to build that they're just gonna make dice <laughs> i think that's the biggest exactly. I mean, there were there were versions of 
Right. There were versions of Life that had really decent spinners because they were floating spinners where the plastic piece sat on top of another plastic piece and you could spin it yeah. really smooth and it was more of a wheel of fortune kind of thing but that was a, a component cost that just sort of got I done was away with those that spin too hard oh, and it would fly away <laughs> right and it, you have the little flying saucer effect going on so i mean i think that's pretty much the only real complaint spinners have is that they've just been manufactured very poorly but with the uh, component cost of things getting less and less, I mean, we've got fidget spinners all over That's the world now. Yeah. And you could, you could a put fidget a spinner fidget quality spinner game in a game. spinner would be very nice. Yeah, if you put that in a game, bam, you've got a really elegant spinner. And you could do that thing that uh, Chip was talking about where the, the sort of tile laying underneath the spinner changes the, the agency involved in the spins. Again, going back to like the Wheel of Fortune... You know, there's a lot of randomness, but sometimes there are, like, bonus spaces that get added during the game. And, you know, it's just you spin at a certain, you know, speed and you feel like you're invested in the action. Well, I think, again, it's tied closer to dice than, like, a card draw or something. Because, like you said, with the dice, you are physically doing it. And also, I think a spinner, especially if it's big enough, like Wheel of Fortune, obviously has, like, really exciting moments of, like, am I going to hit the million or am I going to get bankrupt? And you can you can really do that with a good spinner in a game. Well, I was just going to say that it seemed like there'd be a lot of good tension as you watch it slow down and see where it's going to fall. I think that there's... You could hide a lot of complexity inside a spinner as well because visually it's a lot easier to look at and compare areas, but you could have... You know, you could have a, a very fine grain, um, you know, uh, control over the, the probability as a designer. Well, and visually, when we're talking about companies presenting data, pie charts have been used for a long time uh, yeah. to just give that, that simplicity to more complicated, you know, type statistical information. So, yeah, I agree. Plus, everybody likes pie. <laughs> yeah, pie or pizza. <laughs> I think we were talking about pizza earlier. <laughs> well, I guess the question I would have about spinners is um, would it affect the mood of the game? Like if you have a very seriously themed dungeon crawler or adventure type game, would it feel? Would you be able to fit it in a way that kind of fit thematically or would it feel like it was a mechanic or, or a device or whatever that belonged in a simpler game like a Wheel of Fortune type game or something? Well, I think that that that's definitely going to depend on your audience and the theme itself. Like you said, a dungeon crawler. Well, if you have a little skeleton dude on the side of the board that's wearing a hood and he's, you know, the hmm. reaper of death, and spinning, it's a spinning the wheel of fate. The arrow. <laughs> right, yeah, you know, but it's now the wheel of fate in the game and it only happens during a certain phase of the game. And so everybody's waiting for that wheel of fate to decide, you know, somebody's fate in the game or whatever. You could make it as thematic as you want and I think it could work. But if your player audience doesn't like it, well, it's just not going to work. Because, again, randomness comes down to that. Well, I think it comes down to, uh, comes down to convention, too. Because what's so thematic about rolling dice? It's just we've been rolling dice in yeah. fantasy RPGs since the 60s or 70s. But, I mean, a spinner has been associated with the wonderful game of life that is so popular and other basically children's games and gambling games so it doesn't it only doesn't have that seriousness because no one's used it seriously yeah and i think you 
you guys just kind of won me over already <laughs> by <laughs> describing the skeleton hand and everything else. And so, yeah, I think if you just, it just needs to be used in the right way. So my daughter got her, my daughter is four and she got her first copy of Candyland last night and it didn't come with a deck of cards. It came with a spinner. Huh. So I think that's, that's a totally different game. It's a, it's certainly a component change. Yeah. Well, it's definitely not a, a completely different game. <laughs> well, with the deck, the deck is, it has a predetermined limit of right. cards. Um, when I was a child, my mother would play Candyland with me, and she would try to stack the deck so that I would win, and I would still lose. I don't like Candyland. <laughs> but with a spinner, right. I mean, they could have just used dice, although a spinner is probably cheaper for them to produce. That's well, an interesting change. Well, with dice as well, you've got the um, you've got the special... You know, the four or five special locations um yeah. and if you had them appear on dice i think they would they would show up too often yeah, unless too. you had like oh, three or four dice so how are they set up on the spinner um they're just very thin slivers yeah i think i like them on like the card deck on that one better just because i did i do stack it for my my little kids so that they can you know have a better chance of beating me <laughs> That's true. I, I hadn't thought about that. It, it does take away the possibility, but there was a there was an optional rule that I noticed. I don't know if this was in the original game as well, um, but it says that if you land on one of the special spots and you've already gone past it, you just, in this case, spin again um, instead of being punished mm. and moving backwards. Um, it was listed as a optional rule for younger children um, but in my mind it's a sensible rule for anyone who wants the game to end at some point <laughs> yeah and it is an optional rule in the card draw version as well oh okay so, cool yeah well you know i think the one thing that we haven't talked about uh in regards to randomness is its use as a variance mechanic to where you know random starting conditions for instance yeah anybody got any thoughts about that you mean like for rolling character stats and that sort of thing, or what are you? Well, not not oh, just any that sort of game setup. Because again, map tiles. Randomness doesn't have to. Yeah, it doesn't have to be tied to dice. You could have, say, a deck of ten cards where three events are going to be chosen for this game. So is this specifically yeah. in setup, or are you? Is it? Well, variance within a game at all is kind of what I'm talking about because adding variance through randomness is a very useful way for any game to to set things up even if it's per turn or per round and not just at the very beginning of a game because you can use the things like dwindling randomness if it's every round you know so many cards come out of this little mini deck and then two things are flipped as the the core events of this round then players might have agency in determining which cards get removed from that deck or if cards get added to that deck, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think you do see it in setups uh, somewhat often, like in Seven Wonders, you draw a card and then you flip flip it in whichever side. It doesn't only tell you what civilization you're going to play, but which side of the board you're going to play, whether you have side A on the top of your card or side B on the top of your card. Um, but I think it would be cool to use it, like you're saying, uh, throughout the game in multiple rounds. Um, I kind of have the idea of doing something similar to that in the next uh, um, game project. I was kind of thinking up about uh, particle physics, but um, 
Don't want to try to well, get I mean, into that. <laughs> what you're describing sounds very much like a deck builder. Right, yeah. I'm trying to, to think about that more and more, that the game is the deck builder rather than the players having a deck that they build, but that there be something central to the game that gets built over time through the player's actions and whatnot, something I'm working on for a game. And so that sort of theme is on my mind. But I mean, just the variance of setup is, is also a good way to use randomness in a One game. One of the examples that comes to mind is um, a Vegas Showdown from Avalon Hill. Uh, each round, you're adding a new tile to be auctioned off, and there's a deck of cards that determines the shape of the tile, um, and that influences what type of tile it's going to be, and also um, has an event. So it's it's literally an event deck, and it will have things like uh, no one can bid on slot machines this turn, or um, or there's a windfall where... Uh, everyone gets a different amount of money based on what they've built so far. And in a in an auction game where a lot of the unpredictability comes from what your opponents are going to bid on and what they're trying to get, um, this is sort of like, I think it's one of the only uh, random elements of the game. But the players don't have any control over uh, over the cards as it come out and I think that there's a there's a lot of potential around allowing players to either peek at the next card or take cards out of the deck or move some cards up or down in the deck um, that you're describing that sounds pretty cool yeah I haven't seen that one played yet I think I've played that one about a dozen years ago, if that's been that long, have they had that out that long? Yes. No, okay. it, it's 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 a very much an older game. Yeah, it's been so long. I can't. I can barely remember any details of it. One of the one of the mechanics that I'm working on in uh, in a dungeon exploration game that I'm playing around with is the idea of exploding dice. Um, so in this game. You're rolling one or more dice. You've got some modifiers, plus or minus, and the result, the range in which the result falls, will give you a different outcome. So either you defeat the monster, or um, you you know you lose to it, or you know different outcomes. But one of the things I'm playing with is the idea of exploding sixes. So whenever you roll a, a natural six on any die you get to add six to your total and then roll it again. Um, and you could do this as many times as you want, or as many times as six comes up. So that means in theory, uh, even with a single die, you could defeat any card of the game. Uh, you'd have to get very lucky and roll sixes like, you know, maybe 10 times in a row. Um, but yeah. that's, so That's having that ability of, is is kind of like enticing, you know. Yeah, it's it's part of what I'm trying. I'm almost trying to artificially generate the stand-up die roll at the end of the game, where whatever Push. choice you take, what whenever you're in a situation where you see, okay, my opponent is very likely to win next turn, I can attempt this really crazy thing and even though i'm not prepared for it i'm gonna run up to this dragon and 
either he's going to breathe fire on me and that's it, I'll lose, but I'm going to lose anyway. So maybe there's a slight chance that I can have this really epic turn and it's a, it's a game that we'll be talking about for, you know, for weeks later. Well, it's a, it's a Hail Mary yes. sort of mechanic that allows those hero moment, moments to kind of emerge from the gameplay for the risk-reward to be super high. And I've, I've always loved exploding dice in games, although it's not always used amazingly. But uh, the way you're, you're describing it, that, uh, that definitely works in a hero sort of based game where, well, there's not much chance, but at least I have a chance. So, so let, me, let me sort of follow up on that. What's an example of this mechanic that you've seen used poorly so I can sort of keep an eye out for that and, and avoid that in my design? Oh, I think it was Warhammer. There was some uh, some weapon systems or special units that had an exploding die mechanic that just was used very poorly because if you had enough of them on the board, you were rolling enough dice for for the sixes to just be statistically mm. likely, and that just made it so that you know it was I think it was an orc unit or something like that where they were they were the kind of hail mary sort of unit that you could run up to the line and explode sort of a thing you know they had like dynamite on their back or something like that and you could just wreck the other army oh that's excellent so they were taking so, thematically they were taking the exploding sixes literally <laughs> right yeah but i mean it just it was really poorly used if well i guess it could it could be exploited was the problem in that particular yeah instance. i could see where if you're rolling a dozen dice then um it becomes less interesting yeah, but that all. But I mean, overall, it's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite dice mechanics. I think sure. it all comes down to how you design it. You know, if your if your if design involves building up that many dice that you can roll at once, you're gonna have that problem. But if you, you know, have it designed where there's a enough of a limit on on the dice you're rolling, then you're you're creating whatever balance you need to make it um, the exploding dice be an occasional probability, but a very exciting one when it happens. Yeah, part of that is is modeling the game, so I have a good idea of how many individual dice rolls there will be in an average game. And I'm not sure I've ever seen it used badly in a role-playing mm. sense. So Also, two, two things I think about exploding dice that are potentially issues. One, I always worry about tracking of the sixes or whatever, because you're basically taking that die again. So if you don't have a easy way to track it, I can see someone being like, oh, did I have 18 or did I have 12? Mm -hmm. And if no one's really paying attention, it could get a little messy. And then the other thing is if it becomes tedious re-rolling a single die, which hopefully that's offset by the excitement of am I going to make it? But I don't always like rolling a single die repeatedly. Yeah, that's in this case, in this case, there's... You're creating a running total, so you could just add as you go, and you won't lose track of um, of how many you've gotten. Huh. And there is there's a certain point at which, like the highest range is, let's say you've got a total of twenty or more. So once you've reached that final limit, uh, you could stop rolling. You don't, <laughs> you know, you don't have to follow it all the way through to the end. And there was something you kind of brought up there too, um, 
Chris, Chris Anderson, that is, um, about having to roll a die multiple times or, or whatever. Um, and Chip, in one of his uh, podcasts with you, had talked about increasing probabilities by or, or exchanging probabilities instead of having uh, like one die roll that gives you a, a certain probability. You could have like roll 1d6, and if you get a 3 or, or better, then you get to roll it again and try to get a 4 or better or uh, or four or less, um, in order to kind of um, give you the same probability that you would get from uh, a different type of die roll. And I know we're kind of talking a lot about dice when it comes to randomness here, but uh, dice are fun to me. They're they're just uh, the physical they're, aspect they're the of it. They're the symbol of randomness. Yeah, I guess <laughs> that, that they are. But but it was something that intrigued me. Is that it, it was a cool idea, but does that get tedious in a game or too much to remember as far as rules if you have to roll a die and then roll another die afterwards to to perform a, a follow-up um, check for something um, and I'm asking because I'm kind of trying to decide whether to use that in my current design or not so no I think what I found was um, before before I did the analysis I was sort of thinking in my head okay what's the the difference between rolling two dice simultaneously and rolling, you know, rolling n dice simultaneously and doing n sequential dice rolls, and for the uh, for the granularity of probability that I was going after, I found that having a first and second die roll and the combination of um, whether you were looking for a result. Uh, whether you were trying to and together the results or use an or operator between the two results, that combination of things gives you a lot of, you know, a lot of control over the specific probability that you're looking for. Right. Um, so we should follow up after the podcast and I'll, I'll give you the, uh, the sort of spreadsheets that I came up with. Okay. Yeah, and this is a great opportunity for anybody listening uh, to plug any dice at any dice. I think it's .net or .com. And uh, it just makes the math sort of on the server side easy for you as a game designer because I'm not terribly uh, amazing at probability math. But you can sit there and you can build out any kind of sets of custom dice and then just instantly see what the distribution of values are. And that, that helps uh, if you're trying to make some sort of, uh, you know, staggered bell curve or, you know, whatever you're looking for, you can kind of search for that shape by just changing out a few numbers and making some tests. So any dice is a great uh, probability and dice rolling system that just is a, a great benefit to game designers who don't want to sit there and yeah, do a lot yeah, of Yeah, it's math. a pretty easy tool, and you can also compare different types of dice rolls and see which ones give you the kind of results you like better probability results that's really cool i wasn't aware of that website for the for the oh, for yeah, the exploding sixes um i wasn't actually able to sort of math it out you know because the probability the expected value of a regular d6 is you know it's three and a half but the the expected value of a die when you're when a six results in another die roll and that could go on forever. Um, 
I I didn't sort of calculate it out, uh, but I did like a, a Monte Carlo simulation, um, and it ends up being somewhere between um, you know four and five. So it's it, it if you're if you have the choice between if you have the choice between rolling two dice with an exploding six or rolling one die and adding four to it then rolling two dice is better but it's not better than rolling one die and adding five to it so it falls somewhere in that range this is like dice probability trivia (laughs) (laughs) well see that's the interesting stuff that with dice you can hide from your players whereas in some more complex way players would have to have a better understanding to run that system Yes. Which is something we haven't really brought up yet is the ability for, I mean, dice specifically, but other forms of randomness can really hide a lot of the underlying mechanisms of your game because yeah. you've set up the probability. And when you roll the die, you look at the top. You don't have to, I mean, you don't want to do search tables because that's going to be tedious. But Right, and that's, I think, the strength of the Memoir 44 system is that they've taken the dice and they've compressed all of the wargaming tables that you would normally roll on with normal number dice or pipped dice, and they've condensed that down onto the faces of the actual dies in their relationship to the unit that you're rolling for. Because as you roll, you're rolling with a specific unit in mind, and that changes the meaning of those symbols that are on the dice based on you know, the situation. And so that gives you a lot of power but what they've done is just put those tables onto the dice directly rather than making the players jump through the hoops of adding the numbers and comparing them to the tables. And it's very fascinating that they've hidden all of that onto the faces of the dice. That can be that could be taken to an extreme, especially as you get into trying to simulate things. And I think war games are sort of a, a classic example of this. But if you if you make the leap from a tabletop game to a computer game, now you can you can simulate a lot of different factors, but you're obscuring you're sort of the complexity is separating the um, the player from the end result, and it makes it a little bit harder. You run the risk of the player not being able to make meaningful decisions because they've lost the connection between the decision they make and um, and the outcome. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but if, you know, again, as a designer, you can work in the right ratio of, of things there. How yes. much player choice you get to put in and how much the randomness hides the... Uh, the unnecessary parts or the tedious parts, the less fun parts. In fact, fact, Chris Anderson, I think that was part of something you wrote in your elegance of game design about, um, you know, uh, fun decisions versus uh, the decisions around that are work. Um, Yeah. Well, and this is a great opportunity to say that if you as a game designer designed a game that includes some form of randomness, that the people that you're testing it on don't like, but you think you have a really good game, I would say take it to a different audience and see if it works better with that audience. You might just retheme the mechanics of the game and and just try it on a different audience because that audience may take to that really well. Yeah, good. Point. That's always a tough thing with testing. 
finding yeah. finding out if your mechanic yeah. is broken or if your audience just doesn't like it. Yeah, generally, I find myself gravitating towards designs that I know my playtesters will like <laughs> because I have such you know limited access to uh, to playtesters, and it makes it a lot more rewarding as well. Play to your audience; it works. Yep. Yeah. Well, we are just about out of time, so. Any last thoughts on randomness? Because we did not even scratch the surface of this massive topic today. Uh, Rick, let's start with <laughs> yes, you. Yes, indeed. Well, I would just say um, don't be afraid of randomness. Um, you know, like I said, as not just as a designer, but as a player. Um, you know, if, if the game has problems because someone designed it with poor mechanics, that's one thing. But um, there's a lot of cool games that you might miss out on just because you don't like dice or you don't like uh, um, a game that just has cards and not dice. Um, you know, there can still be a lot of fun tension. And to me, that's what randomness does for a game is add really interesting tension um, as much as any of the other things that it can be used for. Um, and that tension builds excitement. Um, so, you know, give games a chance even if it's just you know reading through reviews in the in the manual just to find out a little bit more about how it works instead of you know just uh, shutting down because it uses components you don't like or doesn't have the components you like good point and chip so i think it really comes back to i think the first one of the first points that we made is the target audience for your game and one of the things I think is useful is using the theme of the game to, uh, and also the components of the game, to express very clearly to anyone that, that picks up the game um, what the amount of randomness that's going to be in the game. So, for example, um, if you have a game that's about uh, goblins putting stuff together and they don't know if it's going to work and they're not very good at you know um you know constructing things then you know there's going to be a lot of randomness and things are going to blow up and and it's going to attract players that are attracted to um randomness uh as opposed to maybe a um a game a, a different theme that gives players the expectation that they'll have more control over the game so i think the the combination of uh knowing who your audience is and using things like theme and components of the game to very clearly express that to people so they won't be their expectations will be in line with what the game delivers and chris well i i'm not going to echo you guys you did an amazing job of describing uh the facets of randomness what a great topic, and it's super enjoyable to talk to all of you guys about this uh, this very interesting subject. And for all the game designers listening, just think through where you put the randomness, whether it's before a player decision or after a player's decision, because that can make or break whether or not the, the people will like uh, the randomness in your game. If your target audience is more strategic, then put those decisions after the randomness has been inserted. And if you have a player audience that's a little lighter and they're just all about having fun, then feel free to throw in the random outcomes after they've already made their choice of action or, or whatnot in the game. So lastly, I'd like to say on randomness, um, this is actually something uh, 
believe I talked to Chip about on Twitter. He had a question about um, like when does something feel amazing or something. And I think the statistics of the randomness are less important to your players' feelings than the stakes connected to them. So if you have a very slim chance of doing something boring, no one cares. But if you have a moderate chance of doing something amazing or really dangerous, that that brings up the tension. And the tension is more important to the player's feeling than the actual statistics. So you don't always need the math to be correct, air quotes, but you need the feeling to be what you're looking for. Yeah, that's a good point. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. That'll do it for this episode. If you guys want to give your contact info and then anything you're working on or if you're showing up to any events, let's start with Chris. Okay, well, I am pretty much focusing on only Twitter at the moment, so you can find me at bhfuturist on Twitter. And I'm just there to express uh, board game tips and help you out as a designer. If you have questions about how mechanics work or you would like input on a game, then just uh, shoot me a line on, on Twitter. And Chip. Uh, Twitter is the main way to reach me as well. I am the Flying Sheep. That's T H E underscore F L Y I N G S H E E P. Um, and as for conventions, I'm going to be at PAX Unplugged uh, in uh, November. So if you're going to be there as well, uh, reach out to me on Twitter and uh, I'd love to, you know, run into you at the convention. And Rick. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm fairly new on there, but um, getting to make some friends on there as well. Um, it's uh, Rick underscore Lorenzen, L-O-R-E-N-Z-O-N. And uh, I'm I'm making some tentative plans to go to SaltCon in Salt Lake City in March. I believe they usually do that in March. So uh, um, looking forward to that, hopefully. And um, and I've been doing some stuff on board game design forum as well as far as just trying to be an active uh, participant there and um, and getting to know as many fellow designers as I can. Cool. I am at Blue Cube BGS on Twitter. Uh, the show is at the BG Workshop. Um, I will hopefully be going to Metatopia in New Jersey in November. Um, I will definitely be going to Unpub 8 in Baltimore in March. And then hopefully getting at least one day in at the G2 Summit in March. And maybe some smaller stuff. Uh, TotalCon in February probably. Also, we are looking for contributors for the show, so if anyone has any ideas for a reoccurring segment that they would like to contribute, you can contact me on Twitter or email the show at theboardgameworkshop at gmail.com. And I think that does it for this episode. Guys, thanks for being on the show, and thank you for listening. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yes, indeed. Great, great show. Love it. Love it.